Welcome to PMQ Learning Outcome 8, Understanding Schedule and Resource Optimization. Part 1 is scheduling, and this has two criteria, 8.1, which is describe ways to create and maintain a schedule, including critical path and Gantt charts, and 8.2, differentiate between the critical path and critical chain as a scheduling technique. So part one, creating and maintaining a schedule. So a schedule shows when a project is expected to begin and to many people more importantly, when is it expected to end? So all projects have a planned beginning and a planned end. That's what makes them projects. But also, when will the events within that life cycle occur? When will the key milestones happen? When will key activities such as designing and testing happen? All that is contained within a schedule. So if we look at the APM definition, a schedule is a timetable showing the forecast start and finish dates for activities or events within a project. So let's lead through the next definition, which is scheduling. Instead of a schedule, we're going into scheduling. And that is the process used to determine the overall duration. This includes identification of activities and their logical dependencies and estimating activity durations, taking into account requirements and available resources. So let's pick that apart. Let's go through that one little bit at a time so we have a complete understanding of what APM defines as scheduling. So scheduling is the process so it isn't something that's done in five minutes. It's a step-by-step -step iterative process to do it. Why do we do it? We do it to determine the overall project duration. So how long is the project going to take? It includes identification of activities. So what you need to do here is if you have a work breakdown structure and work packages, determine what activities need to happen in order to make those deliverables that are represented in the work package. So for example, if one of the work package is come up with a test plan and have it signed off, the activities could be research the testing criteria, write the test plan draft, have the test plan approved. So those activities make up the work that needs to be done in order to create the test plan. Those activities can be scheduled. You can estimate how long they're going to take and you can sequence them, which we'll look at as we move our way through this lesson. Next, we look at their logical dependencies. And a dependency is just basically a relationship between two activities. What has to happen first? So for example, if you have to write code before you can test, that would mean that there's a dependency between the two. Writing the code has to happen before you can test. So that shows that there is um, a dependency between those two tasks. Estimating their durations. So this is coming up with how long each of these activities is going to take. And you can use the same estimating techniques that you use in cost can be used here. Analogous, three-point estimating, uh, parametric, all of that is available to you when you do estimating for scheduling. Um, and then taking into account requirements. What do our stakeholders require? One of the requirements for scheduling is maybe this product needs to be on the shop floor by Christmas. Otherwise, there's no point in doing the project. That is a requirement that has an input into scheduling, something a project team needs to consider. And availability of resources. When can you get the resources that you need in order to complete the activities? If there's a three-week lead time in order to get, say, coding developers, 
that has to be put into the schedule. So all of these things all come together and is considered scheduling. So the first step, once we've activi uh, identified our activities, is to try to put them in their logical order. And we call this a network diagram. And they often call it a precedence network diagram as well, meaning that one thing happens after the next. There's a sequence of activities here. Now, when we take two activities and we want to put them into a network diagram by sequencing them, by their logical relationships to each other, there are three types that are commonly used, and we'll go through each of these. There's finish to start, start to start, and finish to finish. So let's take the first one, finish to start. This is by far the most common. In fact, Microsoft Project defaults to this. So if you're using software like Microsoft Project and you don't change anything, it will automatically be set to finish to start. And that means that the activity cannot start until its predecessor, the activity that goes before it, finishes. So these are often called hard dependencies. And an example of one of these, very easy to conceptualize, is you can't plant a tree until you have finished digging the hole. So it is a process in which you have to wait for the predecessor to complete. You can't get a head start. You can't have an overlap. There's no schedule compression there. So finish to start are hard dependencies. Often there's a physical limitation there that stops you from going from one to the next automatically. So finish to start. One has to finish before the next can start. But not all relationships are finished to start. And if you have every single relationship between activities in your project schedule as finished to start, you're going to have a very padded out, very long schedule because some activities can be done in parallel. And we'll look at some of those first. So start to start, which means an activity cannot start until its predecessor has started. So that means there is some overlap there. there the, the predecessor has to start, but you don't have to wait for it to finish. So an example of that would be coding for a computer program and testing. So you have to at least start coding before you can start testing, but you don't have to finish coding before you can start testing. They can be done in parallel, but they do have a start-to-start -start relationship. So once the developers start coding, the period of time will pass, and then the testers can start testing what the developers have coded. That would be a start-to-start -start relationship. With a finish-to-finish relationship, what we're saying there is that an activity cannot finish until its predecessor has finished. So to illustrate this through an example, you cannot finish proofreading a document until you have finished writing the document. You can write some of the document, proofread some of the document, write some more of the document, proofread that, but you can't finish the proofreading. You can't say, I'm done proofreading until the document has been done, until someone has completed writing the document itself, and that would be finish to finish. So within scheduling, what you do is for all the activities that come out of your work packages, you sequence them and then you analyze the relationships. Are they finished to start? Are they start to start? Or are they finished to finish? What happens with this is you get a network diagram. We still don't know the beginning and the end of the project yet. We're working towards the answer to that riddle. But we're step by step gaining our way there one little part at a time. So we have all of our activities sequenced now and we have a diagram that comes out 
as a result of this. And if you've ever used a software solution like Microsoft Project, it does this for you as you list out your activities and you list the dependencies between those activities and you're finished to start and start to start. It will automatically start creating this network diagram for you. The next logical step in this is to then add the duration of each activity into the diagram. Now we're getting towards being able to understand when the project might finish because every single activity now will have a duration assigned to it. And duration estimates come from just that, estimating. So again, you might have used parametric or three-point or analogous estimating, but every activity that you have for your project gets a duration against it, and you arrive at, the, at that duration through estimating. So for example, you might have activity A, and that takes three days. Activity B might be dependent on activity A, so activity B cannot start until three days have elapsed. It cannot start until uh, activity A is finished. So activity B will start on day three. Activity B, let's say hypothetically, is four days in duration. That means that the earliest that activity B can finish would be seven days. And you just continue to build that picture until you have the beginning and the end date for the project so that you know the project's full duration by inputting in the duration amounts into each activity. What we're going to do next is we're going to define some of the scheduling technique terminology that you will see. The actual creation of the project schedule, the creation of the network diagram, the forward and backward pass and coming up with the critical path, they are exercises in your PMQ book for that, that I would invite you to look at. But what I wanna do now is just give you some verbal clues on what the definitions are to help you simulate this when you practice these scheduling techniques uh, in preparation for your PMQ exam. So the first one is duration, and I think we've hit that one. That is how long an activity takes. The earliest start, which you'll see, is the earliest that an activity can start. So in the example that we used before, we had activity B and that was dependent on activity A. So activity A takes three days. So activity B cannot start until three days have elapsed. So the earliest start date for activity B is three because it has to wait for activity A to complete. The earliest it can finish is the very earliest date that that activity could finish if all goes well, if there's no risks happen, if you don't have any issues with resourcing, etc. So if the earliest that activity B can start is three days, and activity B takes four days to complete, the earliest it can finish is seven. So that is what is meant by early start and early finish. It's the earliest it can finish if all goes well. There are no delays. So there's some definitions for you. And putting those numbers into your network diagram allows you to start answering the question, how long will this project take? Because you do that for every single activity within the diagram. Late finish and late start. This is where things get a little bit interesting. So late finish is the latest an activity can finish without delaying the overall project. So the project is supposed to take a total of 100 days and the late finish there is, it has to be, there is no float, then any delay 
will push the project out. So if you delayed one day, it could be 101 days for that project. But if there is float, let's say, for example, you have four days that this activity can be late without affecting the overall project schedule, in our example, 100 days, then the latest it could finish would be four days after its start. So it is the latest a project, I'm sorry, it is the latest an activity can finish without affecting the end date of the project. So how late can it be before the project itself would be late? And late start is the same concept, but it is the latest it can start without affecting the project end date itself. And the last term that we'll look at is float. Float is how much time a, pro a activity can be delayed without affecting the project end date in this case. So we call that total float. So if an activity has float of five days, that means that it can start five days late. And that 100-day project will not be affected. It will still finish in 100 days. But if that activity is six days late, then all of a sudden we're looking at 101, perhaps 102, depending on how late it is. So as a project manager, it is important to know which activities have float so that you know which ones will affect the project end date and which ones have a bit of leeway. And monitoring how much leeway they have is an important part of schedule management as well. So moving on to a few more terminology items for you um, to help you with your studies with schedule management. Critical path. Critical path is the answer to how long do you think the project is going to take. So if you add up every single activity on the critical path, all their durations, all the way through, the number, the total of that, and in our example it was 100, that is the critical path. It is every single activity that has no float. So any delay to any of those activities causes a delay to the overall project itself. It's often called the shortest amount of time the project can possibly take, because what you've done is you've added up all the raw numbers of every activity that has no float. So there's one sequence of activities, a pathway through the project. And when you add all of those up, that becomes the expected project end date, the earliest it could finish. And any delay to any of those activities will push those end dates out. When you create your network diagram and you look at your early start, early finish, late start, late finish, and of course you plugged in your durations, the critical path will be every activity that have no float at all. The, the, the number will be zero. And software solutions such as Microsoft Project will find this for you and highlight it for you automatically. And in your book there are some examples where there's a dark arrow that will show you exactly where the critical path is so you can get used to practicing this. Because it is the key point to scheduling. It's the backbone of scheduling finding and then managing the activities on your critical path. Total float, as we've said before, is the amount that an activity can be delayed without affecting the overall project duration. Free float is how much an activity can be delayed without delaying the, the start date of the next activity. So if you've got activity A and B, and activity B is waiting for the deliverable to come from activity A, how late can A be without affecting the schedule of when B was supposed to start? That is called free float. But the big one, 
that project managers are really looking at the most. They don't ignore free float, but they're more concerned with total float because as soon as total float is exceeded, the project is delayed. So that brings us next to Gantt charts. So at this point in the process, what we have is our critical path, and we have a very detailed network diagram, a precedent network diagram, that shows all the activities and the relationship to each other. And all of those things are very important and not to be discounted. They allow you to manage, run the project, and try to determine when the project is going to end. But the downside to a network diagram is they're complicated. They're very difficult to show to stakeholders. You need to graphically represent the schedule in a way that a stakeholder can understand, specifically senior management. They do not want to get your Microsoft project out every single time they want to know where you are with the project. And that's where Gantt charts come in. So Gantt charts, as defined by the APM Bonk, is a graphical representation of activities against time. And it's a very common way and a very powerful way of demonstrating what happens on a schedule when. So Gantt charts are often called bar charts. And they're called that because the activities are represented as bars. And those bars show the amount of time that an activity is going to take. The sequence of them can be displayed. They almost look like swimming lanes. So as you build your Gantt chart, you'll have all of the activities in bars connected to each other from the beginning of the project to the end. These can also show what resources are needed in order to complete those activities and the duration or the amount of those activities. This is very useful for resource managers so that they can see specifically when resources are needed and how many of those resources are needed. So you can combine the schedule with the resource requirements using a Gantt chart. The other thing Gantt charts are good for as well is showing progress. As you move your way through the project lifecycle, you can color code the completed activities and show the evolution of progress of things getting done as the project moves its way through the life cycle. So a network diagram is created in order to determine when activities are happening and when the project's going to end. The Gantt chart is a graphical representation of the exact same data, but in a much more digestible format that can be used by senior management to check overall progress of a project, as well as resource managers to know when resources are needed and how many of those resources. So the use of a Gantt chart, so they show the project activities, their start and their finish time, and the logical relationship between each of those. They show the critical path, because you would highlight that on the Gantt chart itself. And the software solutions will do this for you automatically. So you can look at the areas which have no float at all, and the ones that you have to manage very closely to maintain the integrity of the project schedule. It allows you to communicate to stakeholders. It's a powerful communications tool because it's graphical and easy to understand. Uh, it documents actual progress as you move your way through the project lifecycle. It shows the difference between the original project uh, estimate and any new estimates that have come out and any changes that have been made to that project through life cycles. I'm sorry, through change control. So if you have a, a project that's late, you can save the original baseline for lessons learned so that can be reviewed and why were our estimates off. And you can use it also to forecast remaining work. You can see what's left to do and come up with an estimate on how long the remaining work on a project will take. That was critical path technique. 
We're gonna move next to another scheduling technique that's available to you, which is similar but has some very fundamental differences, which is called critical chain technique. Critical chain is relatively new uh, as opposed to critical path, which is what we saw previously in the precedent diagrams. Critical path came out around 1910 and was used a lot during World War II and in the space race. Critical chain came out in 1997. So it is a relative newcomer into the world of project management, but it has certainly made a splash because it has been used very effectively on a number of different projects. There's a lot of stakeholders that show that this has been an excellent tool for realistically managing and realistically forecasting a schedule. So let's talk about what's the same between critical path and critical chain. They both use network diagrams. They both use interdependencies. They both do duration estimates. So all of that remains the same. The critical differences are the following. With the critical path, which we looked at previously, the duration estimates themselves, for example, when we said that activity B takes four days, that four days comes from the subject matter experts, normally the person doing the work, and it is what's called the most likely estimate. It's an estimate where some things are gonna go right and some things are going to go wrong. And oftentimes people build contingency into there. They might say to themselves, you know what, that could take two days, but I, I better say four just to be safe. So four is the number, the most likely estimate. You don't use the most optimistic estimate. You don't use the most pessimistic estimate in critical path. You use the most likely, the middle of the three estimates. You don't do that in critical chain. In critical chain, you use the most optimistic estimate. So you ask the team member when they do their estimate on how long the work's gonna take, what is the best case scenario? Everything goes right, no risks turn into issues. How long would that activity take? And they may say two days. That's a scary number to them. Now I know what you might be thinking, isn't that a bad thing? Why would you only take the optimistic estimates? Aren't you gonna come up with an unrealistic, unachievable schedule? Aren't you going to be evoking change control left, right, and center? Won't your management team be disappointed in you because you've created this schedule that isn't achievable? The way you manage all of those things is done with one very, very simple technique when it comes to critical change. You use a buffer. So you have a sequence of activities and the estimation on those activities is the most optimistic, but then at the discretion of the project manager and the project management team, you put in a number where those activities are allowed to be late. And often this is done as 50%. So if you have a number of activities and it's the optimistic estimates on those activities is 10 days, a rough number that's often used is 50%. So you will add in a five day buffer at the end of those activities. And what the project manager manages here as part of schedule management is how well is that buffer holding up? Often there's a little thermometer on the side of some software programs that shows the buffer going down. And if the buffer is getting down to zero, meaning that you are going to be more than five days late with these activities using our example, that's when you would have to put in change control perhaps. That is when you might need to intervene. You might need to take corrective actions, such as pulling resources off of something that has maintained their buffer onto this one that might be late. So you're moving resources around in order to maintain the integrity of the buffer. You're not actually late 
when it comes to critical chain technique until all of the buffer has been used up. So the concentration from the project manager moves away from how are the tasks doing, how are we doing against completing these tasks, to how well are we doing against our buffer? Is that number being used up too quickly where we have to take corrective actions? And a lot of the actions taken by a project manager is done about resourcing, making sure that the right amount of resources are on the activities, and if buffers are being used, move resources or add resources to an activity to maintain those integrities of the buffer. This takes some understanding from senior management. They have to realize that you're not trying specifically to get the project to finish to the optimistic estimates. What you're doing instead is that you're using buffers and you're allowed to use those buffers. They're allowed to be used up. And as long as you don't overdo it, you don't go over the buffer itself, then you are actually not late. It's an interesting method. It's been used very, very successfully. And as you can see, it has some fundamental differences, some similarities as well, still network diagram, still dependencies, still have you finish to start and you start to start. You still do estimates on duration, but the estimates themselves are optimistic and you manage that through buffers. So you can look in your PMQ book because there is a, a diagram that will show you the difference between the two. So you can look at this graphically, so it won't just be words, where it shows a critical path and a critical chain project that comes out on the same day. But with the critical chain, you will see that there is a buffer amount that is added in order to protect the integrity of the schedule. So to summarize on the critical chain technique, it places the emphasis on resources. So moving resources around in order to make sure that your buffers don't get used up or adding additional resources in order to make sure that your buffers are maintained, that you're not actually late, you don't use those up. Um, use optimistic estimates instead of most likely. You strip out all contingencies so you're not worried about what could go wrong. The contingency is contained in the buffer itself. Once the work is underway, you monitor it and you see how well your buffers are holding up. And again, a lot of software solutions, they will have a little thermometer and it'll show you as your buffers go down, it might alert you to the fact that you're getting it pretty close to the bone and you might have to take some corrective actions. The culture required, well, you have to understand that the optimistic estimates are the ones that are using that isn't the actual schedule baseline. It's the optimistic estimates plus the buffers becomes your schedule baseline in the world of critical chain. So some of the differences between the two of them, critical path, they emphasize managing the activities, trying to get those activities done on time. Critical chain, the emphasis is on getting the right resources so that your buffers don't get used up. And these are labor as well as non-labor um, resources, such as capital items, things that you need to purchase. Um, so with critical path, there's float in some activities and others, for example, the ones that are on the critical path have no float and you watch that float. You manage the ones that have um, no float at all very closely. And if you know that activities do have float, you can move resources to a critical path activity if it looks like something's going to be late. So that's done with critical path. Critical chain strips all the float away. There is no float, but it's managed through, again, the buffer at the end. So critical path, that's a traditional approach. It's been used 
since 1910 or so, maybe even before, but the date that they usually um, coincide with critical path analysis and critical path technique is around 1910. And it was very popular in the 30s, 40s, and 50s. The critical chain is relatively new, but is being adopted very quickly because of the success. It is a very logical, effective way of managing a project schedule.